All right, all right. Second Samuel. What are you going to do it? <laughs> Second Samuel, chapter 16. <laughs> so settle on down. It's good to see you all this morning. Thanks for coming for the endless study on the life of David. I think we have, what do we have? Like eight or nine chapters left. All right, and we'll have this whole guy in the bag. So what's been happening, you guys? Give me a quick review. Second Samuel 16. What's the context here? Anybody remember anything at all? What is it, Tom? David on the run, right? This is familiar to us, right? David spent like years on the run before he became king. And so now it's David on the run part two on the backside of the kingdom. Very good. Who's he on the run from? Absalom. And who is Absalom? His son, right? Okay. Now, if, I think I've confessed to you guys before that I have a terrible tendency whenever I read that I skip all proper nouns. And so characters are really hard to follow. I just literally, like some dude, it's some other dude, it's some other guy. And so this is, we are filled with proper nouns, proper, you know, characters. So if you have, if you're at all like me and you don't remember who is Ziba or Ziba or who is Mephibosheth or who is Hushai or who is... I don't know, Shemi, then you're, you're just super lost, okay? So do you have, am I the only person who's terrible at this? I'm, I'm like, it's, I'm always like this cast of characters, and I don't know, Ahithophel, which one was he, okay? So we're going to have to go, we're going to have to do that. I have to like slow the train down to look at these characters, or I don't remember which one is which at all, okay? So we're going to look at these. But the thing you need to know as we go on, as David's on the run, what's up, Blendy, is uh, it's a really discouraging day for David, Okay? There's these moments of victory, you know, where Saul gets turned around and David is saved or whatever. But this is, is going to be a rough day for David, okay? So we're going to take it as it comes. You ready? 2 Samuel chapter 16. The first one is this guy, Ziba. Ziba? Ziba, maybe. Verse 1. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, and 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. And the king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who come exhausted in the desert. Okay, now I said that this is a discouraging day. This doesn't seem very discouraging, does it? Seems like somebody has showed up with like food and donkeys and wine. What's that, Chris? It's like parties. It's like things are going pretty well. So why is this so discouraging? Do you know why this is so discouraging? It comes. Check it out. The king asked, where is your master's grandson? Who is his master's grandson? Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Okay. And Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. And then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. Okay, so let's just kind of review all this. Who is Ziba? Ziba is the servant of, what did you say? The servant of? Of Saul, but really, yeah, but give me, in reference to another person. To Mephibosheth, right? Okay. Which only moves the ball a little bit. Who is Mephibosheth? Grandson of Saul. So what was the Mephibosheth story? We've already seen this. This was, Kelly, what chapter is that? 11? When was that? 
Nine? Okay. So what's the Mephibosheth story? Zach? David was looking for somebody to be able to provide the goodwill towards Saul's lineage that he promised Jonathan. Yes. Very, very good. That's an excellent summary. David was looking for someone to whom he could show the goodwill that he had promised to Jonathan. So Saul had a kid named Jonathan. Even though Saul hated David, was trying to kill David, Jonathan was David's best friend. And then Jonathan has a kid, and he made a promise that he would always be good to Jonathan and to his line, to his people, to his family. And so he takes Mephibosheth, who is the rival to the throne. He is the grandson of the king. And instead of killing him, which would be the typical play, let's get rid of all the, you know, all the rivals to the throne. What, is, what, is, what does David do for Mephibosheth? Takes him into his house. Takes him into his house. Quig? This was spot on the table for him. Right, this is whole fantastic. It's kind of one of the most kind of picturesque moments in the Bible about what? What is it? What's the term? It's about adoption. What does it mean that you are outside of this family, you are, you are drawn into this family, you are provided for, you have a spot at the table. And Mephibosheth, what was the other detail in Mephibosheth's life? He's lame. He's lame. He's super lame. The dude was lame. Okay? And so he's a cripple. He's, you know, he can't do, he can't provide for himself. And so he goes from like being the enemy of the king, the, the, the lame man, to suddenly welcomed at the table. And it's this picture of extraordinary generosity, which is why... This is such an incredibly discouraging moment because what Ziba is telling him is that Mephibosheth, when he sees David on the run, instead of saying, Behold, well, what, what should he say? What would be the proper thing for Mephibosheth to say when he sees David getting ousted? He should be concerned. Yeah, there ought to be some measure of loyalty that like, oh man, David is a good guy. David, is, you know, David has been kind to me and gracious to me. He's been loving towards me. I will defend him or I will speak to him. But instead, apparently, and we'll come back to the apparently. There's an asterisk on this story. Um, apparently, he is like, hey, now's my chance. Maybe if David's on the run, maybe things go crazy with Absalom and maybe I will finally come into my own. And so Ziba is totally selling Mephibosheth out for, for being disloyal to David. And Ziba is going to come in and try to like curry favor with David. Right? Make sense? Okay. John? Of course, uh, this is uh, Ziba's story. That's right. This is Ziba's story. He may have had uh, a very challenge. That's absolutely right. So this is, this is this, there's some proverb that says, how you guys doing? There's a proverb that says, that, you know, one story sounds right until the other guy comes forward to tell his side of the story, right? And so we, the Bible does not tell us ultimately what is true about this, okay? In this moment, Ziba is saying that Mephibosheth is a rat and that he's trying to, he's trying to burn you, David. And so David's response, what is David's response to Ziba when he hears this? He's like, okay, everything that I had given to Mephibosheth is now yours. I had the same suspicion John did, like, Yeah, and I think we, we do well to be suspicious of Ziba. But, like I said, this doesn't get resolved. There's question, and, there's question about this. But from, from David's perspective, at this moment, what's interesting is he doesn't seem suspicious. He just says, all right, fine. I hated that kid. It's all yours. And he gives it all, and he gives Ziba everything. And then Mephibosheth is left out. Maybe justly, maybe unjustly. But David is, seems like David is predisposed to be like, well, what else is new, right? 
my son is against me, it shouldn't shock me that my adopted son is also against me, right? Okay, now, we'll skip ahead a little bit because there is a postscript. Do you know where the postscript to the story is in this? Kelly, do you know? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know about the postscript, but I know about the prescript. Okay, go ahead. So, in chapter 9, David does his great. Here it is. Here's Second Samuel 9. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and, and 20 servants. Ziba said, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands the servants to do. Right? So it's a re, it's a, I think the point is it's a pretty good estate right? Well, Mephibosheth stands to lose and Ziba stands to gain is a whole bunch of stuff, right? And Ziba swoops in and he gets it all. And it's his. Because David's like, well, crud. You know, it's just bad. Okay. Where's the postscript? Anybody know? Can you find it, Michael? And then David returns to the city. Yes. Mephibosheth comes out to meet him and clarifies what's going on. Yes. Or at least from his perspective. That's right. So go ahead. Flip up to 19. And we never get a divine verdict on this, okay? But when Mephibosheth hears, he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. None of that's true, okay? Take, take a look at 19.24. So you go up a couple chapters, and then we'll, uh, maybe I should even wait till we get to 19, but we'll just do it now. Okay, so 19.24, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. What, that is a weird thing to say. The dude never cuts his toenails, I guess. It's weird. Okay, what, what, is, what are we meant to take from that? He's in mourning. He's in mourning. Okay, this is weird to us. We're like, what? Thank you, but that's, what's that? It's a sign that he's in grief, which is evidence that it's true, right? It's evidence that he, if he's looking all ratty, it's like it's for this whole time he's been kind of in a ratty state because he's grieving, which might mean that he was grieving David, not like celebrating his own victory, okay? So verse 25, when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? Which is to say, is it true? Are you thinking you're going to become king? Is Ziba telling the truth? And Mephibosheth's response is, my lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant, my lord, to the king, to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God. So do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? Okay. What do you think? Who do you think is telling the truth? Do you think it's Ziba? Do you think it's Mephibosheth? Are we on team Mephibosheth? What's, what's so interesting, it, it seems to me like, okay, he's in mourning, he's grieving, there's evidence of that that goes back in time. I think he's telling the truth. Um, and his, his orientation here is like, I'm not even asking for anything. I'm just telling you the truth, but I don't care. What do I care? You've already rescued me. I have, I have no cause to complain. I'm not asking for my fields back. And so I think Mephibosheth is telling the truth. What's that? Especially from 30, right? From, uh, what, are you, what are you seeing in verse 30? 30 just him saying, like, I don't, kind of like similar to Solomon, dividing the child. Yes. And the truth being shown by the, um, this is like a. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like he's in a humble posture. Um, Chris, Chris just thinks that he's on Team Mephibosheth. But here's the one reason that I, I pull my punches on this is look at David's response. He's standing right there, right? Okay, like we're reading this 3,000 years after the fact. We don't speak the native language. We can't see his face. David is standing three feet in front of him. And he says, verse 29, the king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Which means that David doesn't know. Right? He's saying, I don't know. You take half, you take half. He just divides the estate 50-50. Where if, I think if, if he knew that Mephibosheth was telling the truth, he'd be like, kill Ziba. It's all yours again. Let's go. But instead, it's like, he's like, I don't, how am I supposed to know? I don't know this. I don't know this. Split it and, and, let, and let's go. Right? So we're left with a very unsatisfying answer. Make sense? Here's just a couple of takeaways from that. First of all, David's having a bad day. Not in chapter 19, but back in chapter 16. And in chapter 16, when he gets bad information, when he gets discouraging information, he just believes it. Do you know this phenomenon? Like when you're having a bad day and you get bad information, then you're just like, well, that's the end of that, right? Like, I, let me see, do I want to get into this? I'm, wor- I'm engaging with somebody right now in a life situation that's really genuinely difficult. And they come out of a, a situation that's really very difficult. And what's fascinating is to, it's so interesting to watch when an obstacle arises. This is a young man that I'm helping to coach. Um, he was kicked out of his home and I'm helping him kind of figure out how, where he's going to go. And you guys, when like a small obstacle arises, he sees it as this looming, looming disaster, right? And so there keeps being like, like every three days, there's like a new panic button. There's a new thing that's like, oh, it's all is lost, all is lost. And it's fascinating to be like, I'm like, well, actually, that's probably solvable. We probably just do this and then that, and then everything will be fine. And try this and then that. I bet this will work. Um, this morning. So here's an example. And I might be wrong about this one. This is fresh off the, just fresh off the press. But I just got a text that he has COVID. And in order to be excused from work, he has to go to a doctor and get a, get a doctor's excuse. And that's going to be a, you know, a huge mess because he doesn't have health insurance and he can't go to a doctor. And I'm thinking, since when do you need a doctor to tell you you have COVID? We're like, for the last two years, if you're in a, if you're within 30 feet of somebody that's had COVID, you're excused from work for the next two weeks, Right. Like, you know what I mean? But so in, in his world, it's like, oh, this is bad news. Everything's lost. And I think probably not. Maybe the laws, have, maybe the rules have changed, but probably not. You, you understand this phenomenon? Okay. So for David, he's just so beat that he gets news and he just believes the worst. Do you watch, watch this in your own life? When you are, when things are going badly, it's so easy to believe the worst news. And maybe it's not quite as bad as you think, right? So just watch that in David's life. Okay, Robin? As this uh, goes on in the Shukhafet, Would it be a little louder? As this goes on in the Shukhafet, answers David and said, you just give it all. It makes me think of the story with Solomon with the two women and the baby. Yes. And the one that was truly the mother was the one that's, you know, don't kill it, don't cut it in half, give it to the other mother, just preserve that child's life. Absolutely. And I kind of feel the same way about how he's reacting to what David said. Absolutely. I would say, and I think most people would read this account and say, Mephibosheth seems less uh, duplicitous. He seems less likely to be the one that's being kind of shady. I think that that's true. But it's just striking to me that David 
seems unconfident in that. Even by chapter 19, and things are going to start going better for David, by chapter 19, he just simply says, split it. And they can, they can split it. So who knows, right? Sometimes it's hard to know what's true, what's not true. You've got two different sides. You've ever done this with your children? You don't know which one's telling you the truth, right? You ever do it with a, an employee? You don't know. Sometimes it's tough. Becky? I'm Yes. This is okay. So what Becky is saying is that in First Samuel, David seemed to be a much more confident man, right? He would inquire from the Lord, "What is the right answer?" Then he'd go do it. And in Second Samuel, ever since Bathsheba, he is off his game. He's like, "Well, I don't know. Maybe this. Maybe that. Maybe this. Maybe that." And he'll have these bright. Mo- we're we're going to have a bright moment in a second. We're going to see David get something right in a really peculiar, unusual, glorious way. But absolutely, Becky, he is not. At his best, and he hasn't been for for quite some time, for sure. Lily, this is a little skipping ahead, but we were just thinking about Solomon, and someone else had mentioned the story about you know which baby belongs to which prostitute, you know, but how that actually kind of seems like an echo of what just happened with Siva and Nebuchadnezzar, and like a redemptive echo of that story. Okay, so first of all, have we been saying Mephibosheth wrong all these years? Mephibosheth? <laughs> well, you just said it different, and I never know how to say anything. So if I'm butchering this, just, you know, let me know. So, yeah, there is. There's that similar thing. Of, and, of course, you know, the, the brilliance of Solomon is a split in a baby. It doesn't work quite as well as split in a field, right? That's his whole, whole brilliant thing, for sure. Charlie Tall. I just think it's so interesting. David is up against Goliath and had all his bravery right? to, to confront anyone in his family. Completely. He's a train wreck. You see it all from, from the whole Bathsheba thing from that point on. Like the Amnon thing is a mess, Tamar and Absalom. And, and there's a lot more. He's going to get, you know, probably, he's going to get rebuked pretty hard for, for refusing to go after Absalom when all of his men are fighting against him. He is, he is absolutely fraught with uncertainty at every, at, every, at every turn. No question about it. Okay, so Ziba, that's a rough moment. Because as far as David knows, we're not living in chapter 19. We're living in chapter 16. As far as David knows, his son wants to kill him. This one that he has adopted and shown kindness to is just absolutely, you know, going to, like, betray him. And it's just a discouraging moment. Okay? Let's keep going. Next one. So then, I lost my place. Where are we at in the text? Um, verse 5. Okay. So next one is this dude, Shimmy, Shemi. Okay. I don't think we've met him yet. He's a relative of Saul. Okay. Here's what he says. Here's what happens. Verse 5. As King David approached Bahurim... A man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. Okay, what's Saul's family? Where's he from, first of all? He's from Benjamin. He's probably a little bit more subdivided down in there, but he's, he's a Saulite, right? His name was Shemi, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. And he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. And as he cursed, Shemi said, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom, and you've come to ruin because you are a man of blood. Okay? So the way I picture this, I'm not sure if this is true, but I picture like there's a road that's kind of like low near a hill, and Shemi's up on this hill, and he's just kicking all the dirt and gravel. He's like the king, and he's just 
throwing garbage at him and taunting him and making fun of him. And David's surrounded. He's, he's on the run, but he's surrounded by armed guards, right? And he's a bit, probably in a bit of a mood because of the whole mess with Ziba or Mephibosheth or whatever else is there. And this is David, okay? This is David who, when Nabal comes out and starts talking smack about, you know, the sheep, he's like, put on your swords. It's, it's time to go to war. Watch what David does, okay? He does not do what you might think he would do. Verse 9 says this. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Uh, now, proper nouns. Do you recognize Abishai? Do you remember this guy? Because we've seen him before. He is very, Robin, well done. He's one of the mighty men. He's one of the three. David's got these little groups of like, these are my three favorite, and these are my ten favorite, and these are the really good ones, right? And he's one of the three. He's one of like the, he's like the inner circle, the Republican guard. He's the, you know, he's, I don't know what the inner circle of social, secret service are, but he is like, he's super badass, okay? And so in, in 2 Samuel, are we allowed to do that? <laughs> okay, all right. 2 Samuel 23 Abishai is the brother of, I've heard Quig say some things, okay, so, you know, so. <laughs> Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zariah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he had killed, and so he became as famous of the three. And he loves killing bad guys, okay? Earlier, if you, if you care, you don't have to, but if you go to 1 Samuel 26, Abishai has said to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. That was Saul. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. Okay, so Abishai, he's, he is, he's a man of wrath. He's a man of rage. He's, got, he's David's chief bodyguard. He's the, he's the chief of the three, which makes him the one. And he's like, let me kill this guy. And you would think that David would say, like, that is a good idea, right? If nothing else, I can take out my pent-up frustration from Mephibosheth on this guy, and we'll just kill him, all right? And this is where, right when you're like, David, you're so off your game, and everything's messed, he surprises me. He just keeps, even though he's, his life's falling apart, he surprises me, and he gets stuff right. Look at verse 10. But the king, this is back in 2 Samuel 7, 16, verse 10. But the king said, what do you and I have in common, you sons of Zariah? What, what do they have in common? That's all, yeah, I mean, there's all, there's, they got a lot in common. Like, you love killing people, for one thing, right? I mean, David is a man of blood. It's true. This accusation that he's a man, it's true. But, what's that? Abishai is Joe Abs. Abishai is Joe Yes, that's right. That's what, yeah, exactly right. But, when, but, but that's the, the question. David is saying, I'm not like you, you violent person. To which you could be, you could be accused of thinking, but you literally are like him, right? I mean, actually, okay? So, and then look at what David says. If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, then who can ask, why do you do this? <coughs> David then said to Abishai and to all his officials, my son who is my own flesh is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the curse I am receiving today. That is an extraordinary response. He's saying, you know what? This pain in my life, 
First thing he says, you know, who knows, maybe the God who is sovereign over all has decreed this for me, and I'm just going to drink it. And then he says in the next breath, you know what, that's what has happened. This is the Lord's action. I will surrender to it. Whatever cup he wants me to drink, I will drink it. And that is, that is odd, right? Think about, the, when was the last time that you were suffering, right? Could have been today. You could have gotten a paper cut, and you're like, Lord, why did you make the universe, you know? And he's suffering, and he's like, you know what, Lord? Like, this is your will. I'll take it all. That's amazing, right? And, and you get this glimpse of David at his best. Jennifer? My study Bible refers back to Nathan confronting David about um, Bathsheba. Yeah. And he says, thus um, says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you. And in my study Bible, it says David may be thinking of that, and that's why he says God has I think that's exactly right. So what Jennifer's saying is that David remembers that Nathan said, hey, what, you blew it, and this is going to matter for years, and I'm going to bring pain into your life. And so when the pain comes into his life, instead of fighting it, he's like, okay, Lord, I'll just drink it. I'll just take it. I think this is your will. I think that's, that's crazy. Kelly, did you want to say something? No, I was going to say it, it's, uh, it's an echo of the previous chapter, 15, the ark, or, or something. I can't Yes. If this kingdom is mine, God's going to put me back. And if it's not, what can I do? That, yep. So it's like a, how he came into the kingdom in the first place. From Saul to him. Transfer from Saul to him. Yeah, really nothing to do with it. That's exactly right. Okay, what Kelly's saying is like, you, you, we saw in the very beginning, like go, go back like a book. Go back, you know, 20 chapters, right? And David's like, I'm not going to raise my hand against Saul. If God, God has anointed Saul... Saul is the king until the Lord determines otherwise, and I'm not going to be guilty of subverting the will of the Lord. And then, as he's getting kicked out of the kingdom, the guy takes the ark. He's like, I'm not going to play any of these kind of games. The Lord is sovereign. I will follow his will. He is exceptionally submissive, exceptionally subordinated, okay? Now, I'm going to say this about Quig, and then I'm going to call on Quig. It's going to make it awkward for you. But but one of the things that I so admire about Quig, because I get a front row seat, right? I get to watch his life. Quig is, this might be surprising to you actually, but Quig is an uncommonly submissive man, right? Quig is an Episcopalian in his church government, we are, and so are you, okay? And Episcopalians believe that our authority descends from above, and Quig is subordinate to his bishop, right? He's obedient, and he's got his own thoughts, what he wants to do, and he leads. But anybody who leads, anybody who ever has men under their authority, women under their authority, it only works if they are also under the authority of another. And I've watched time after time where Quig is like, this is, you know, it has been decreed, and I will be obedient to this thing, and then we'll, we'll function within that. I think you do that exceptionally well. And then your expectation is that others would also be submissive to authority, right? And that's what David is doing. He's like, he's the king. And as someone who is a king, he gets like, people need to obey me because I'm the king. But the only way that that works is if he is obedient to the one above him. And the one above him is Yahweh. And so if Yahweh tells Shemi to throw rocks at him, he's like, all right, that's the deal. All right, so watch in your life. Do you love authority that you exercise more than you love the authority that you are under? Right? It's a tricky thing. We tend to be like, I love authority as long as it starts right here and flows downward. But David is, he's in a chain. And he's, he's going to bend the knee to the one above him. Whether it's Saul who's chucking spears at him. Or it's Yahweh who is ordaining 
that gravel be tossed in his face. All right? First quig, and then we'll come back here. Did you still want to say something? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. He didn't want the cup, but he submitted to the will of the Father. Yes. It's not a perfect uh, foreshadowing, but it is a foreshadowing. It's absolutely a foreshadowing. And this is, well, if it's not a foreshadowing, it shows us what is so great about David, right? Why is like, you're like, David blows this, he blows this, he blows this. He just screws so many things up, right? But what's great about David is this. He really did. He actually loved God and wanted to obey him, genuinely. And so what you see, when, you see the, when you see Jesus show up and he comes in this, he is the true and greater David. He is this fuller revelation of what David was approximating but couldn't really fulfill. There ain't nobody, there's no one with greater authority than Jesus. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the king of all things. And there is no one more submissive and subordinate than Jesus. He will drink this bitter cup because the Father wants him to do so, right? And that's the way it's supposed to work. The more you bend the knee, the lower down you go, the more authority that God gives you, right? And that's really what I think we're supposed to see here out of David. All right, a whole bunch of hands. First go to John. Where'd you go? There you are. John. David, however, Wait, David, however, what? Got back at him. Oh, yeah, yeah. The end of the story, yeah. Uh, in uh, first Kings, when David is uh, giving Solomon his final charges, he says, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, and behold, and behold, there is a few son of Gareth, Benjamin, of Bacharim. Now, was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to but when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you will know what you want to do to him. And you will bring him his gray hair down to Sheol. Yeah. So what John is reading at the end, and we'll get to, we'll get to this when we get here too. But at the end of the story, God is going to or David is going to bring retribution to some of his enemies, including this guy. So there is going to be an ultimate just ending to the ark, and in his jurisprudence, he has the authority to do that. But it's amazing that he delays judgment until the very end of the story. And we'll, we'll maybe unpack that in about eight weeks. We'll get there. Okay, Catherine. Back to the authority, the chain of authority. Yeah. Marriages. Um, Jesus is the head of the man, the man is the head of the woman. And to me, I see that as just this safety. We're safe within our authority. Like the church, quick, and you know, the church is over us. And we just have all this protection because, you know, depending on submission, of course. That's right. But it can keep us in line if we remember that, you know. And we pray for our leaders here to have wisdom. We pray all the time. They're our leaders. And so then when they make decisions, maybe we're not that happy or, or we hear others aren't happy, then we go to the Lord and say, okay, we pray for you to give them wisdom. So That's right. I don't know. Yeah. That, I mean, and that, that whole thing, if you recognize that you are under authority and you are in authority, almost everyone is under authority and in authority over someone. 
and just recognize, do you like it up, up top as much as you like it down below, you know? Tommy? I think it's interesting that um, David so clearly hears God's voice um, through Shimmy's words, um, because the Shimmy's charge against him, you're a man of blood, is actually God's own charge. Mm -hmm. He wants to build the house of God. And so I think it's interesting also that he sees God as the one that determines kings. He was, he was the one that took over kingship from Saul's family, you know, which Shimmy is, is a part of. Similar to Absalom's coming in to take over the king, uh, the kingship over the kingdom. And so David says, let God determine this. You know, instead of us take vengeance, instead of us take action, let God determine Okay, so the way that you set that up, Tommy, was so, so brilliant. Could, could you hear the voice of God in the mouth of your enemy? Like, this is so hard. Because my enemy, they just dismiss them. They're fools. They're wrong. They're evil. They're not. But David has this guy kicking dirt at him. And he's like, you know what? I bet the Lord probably has you doing that. That's so, it's so incredible that he can, he's able to do that. And he does. So here's what happens. Verse 13. Because the clock keeps ticking. Verse 13. So David and his men continued along the road while Shemi was going along the hillside opposite him. Okay, I didn't imagine the hill thing. Hillside opposite him. Cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering with dirt. And the king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there he refreshed himself. Bet he was. Like, you know, how long can you put up with that? And you just got to like, don't look, take it. Oh, that one hurt. And just do it. And he shows tremendous restraint, right? And could you, a little bit stole my thunder on this, but that, that is, that should remind us of Jesus, Right? That he just takes the hit and he takes the hit and he takes the hit. And it is exhausting. But he just is willing. He's able to restrain himself from showing wrath. He just drinks it and he takes it. And not only, when I say that, it's probably the case that you're imagining Gethsemane. Right? That you're imagining the road to the cross. And that was all true right there. But one of the crazy things about Christianity, I don't know if you've ever appreciated how Christianity is unique and different in the, in the history of the world as, as different people have stepped forward to offer suggestions about what the world is really like and what the creator of the world is really like. Have you ever noticed that one particular difference between Christianity and Islam is that Islam is incredibly brittle, right? Salman Rushdie, you just saw he's in the news again, right? I just got attacked. Do you remember, you got to go back like, what is it, 20 years or 30 years? How, how long was it? 30, 34 years. Okay, what was Salman Rushdie's offense like way back in the day? Do you remember this? Satanic verses. Satanic verses, okay. And what was the, what was the gist of this? Criticized Islam. Criticized Islam. Yes, exactly, right? And so when that was going on, I remember it being struck that Islam is a system that if you say something bad about Islam, if you say something bad about a law, if you are disrespectful, it's like, we get, it's like, you know, we got to kill you. It's over. You're dead, right? Think about Christianity. Jesus is so unimaginably patient in suffering insult. And then he tells his followers, they insulted me, they're going to insult you. Just take it. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Just take it. When they slap me on the face, I turn to the other cheek. When they slap you on the face, turn the other cheek. Christianity is it's unbelievable in that our Lord... And then we ourselves are to be a people that are infinitely patient in suffering evil. And everything in you wants to be like, don't you dare do that, right? How disrespectful, how wrong of you, how unjust of you. But in Christianity, it's like, you know what, that's fine. 
Bring it on. We'll just take it. We'll just take it. We'll just take it. We'll just take it. And that's what David is doing. It is exhausting. But as he's modeling for, for you, he's modeling for us what Jesus would be, not just for a week's worth of time, but for all of time. His name has been, Jesus' name has been dragged through the mud for centuries. And he says, it's fine. It's fine. They're gonna, he says, they're going to drag you through the mud. And it's fine. It's fine. We'll clean it up at the end. Just wait. Yeah. It's a big, big deal. And so David, again, there's, David blows all these things, but he gets this right. And he learns how to take the hit and quite literally turn the other cheek. Right? It's a setup for what Jesus is going to call us to be in our lives. <coughs> Groovy? Okay, a couple more. Let's keep going. New scene. It's going poorly, but David is killing it. Verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. That's another name. Who's that? Do you remember Ahithophel? Which one is he? David's counsel. What is it? David's what? David's counsel. And which side is he on now? He's, he's gone over. So we got all these guys. You got all these guys that were David's team. Ahithophel was on David's team, but he is genuinely now loyal to Absalom. So we've lost him. But then there's this other counselor who was a mole. Which one is he? Hushai. Hushai. Okay, very good. All right. So meanwhile, Absalom said to all the men of Israel, I'm sorry, Absalom, meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. So he's a bad guy now. He's on Absalom's side. And then Hushai, he was secretly on David's side, the archite, David's friend, went to Absalom and said to him, long live the king, long live the king. Okay, remember, he's the mole. And Absalom says to Hushai, is this the love you show your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend, meaning David? And Hushai says to Absalom, no, 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 the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Okay, what do we call this? What's, what's he doing right there? He really is. Both ends against the middle. Now, when he says, I will, I will serve the one chosen by the Lord. I will serve the one chosen by these people. I will serve the one chosen by the men of Israel. Who is he talking about? He's talking about David. Who does Absalom think he's talking about? All right. He's got this little double entendre going here. He says, I will be his and I will remain with him. And then he says this, furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I serve your father, so I will serve you. Now, this is a little more explicit in his, you know, coming on to Absalom's team. But he asked the question, whom should I serve? There's, he's intentionally being a little bit uh, double in his language, right? But whatever it is, Absalom buys it and he lets him onto the team. He's now, he's made it onto the cabinet and he's going to be one of the guys. And his job there is specifically to thwart Ahithophel. And it was David's idea. Yes, David's like, dude, go be a mole. And he takes... Well, you got, you got to know, he's going to risk, he's going to lose his life if this goes badly. But it's, so Ahithophel's there giving advice. Hushai's there giving advice. Absalom thinks they're both on his side, but one of them is there to thwart the other. All right? Can you, and you're going to see more of these guys, but I just want you to learn, learn these characters. So this, this weird thing happens. Absalom says to Ahithophel in verse 20, give us your advice. What should we do? And do you remember his advice? It's weird, but we wouldn't generally do this, Okay. Uh, verse 21, Ahithophel answered, Lie with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, and the hands of everyone with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, 
and he lay with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. That's the plan. Okay, what is the, what's the, what? <laughs> yeah. what what's the rationale behind this? They're going to hate him now. Okay, yes, yeah, so, so who's going to hate him? The people are going to see the ugly side of the true, I mean, the nastiness. Well, okay, that's true, but what is, Ahithophel, the guy giving this advice is genuinely on Absalom's side, and he thinks this is a good idea. So why? What is, he, what is he saying here? What's the point of it, Zach? It's a power play. It's a power play. Yes, very good. So take the women, build, you know, set up a tent, take the women, and why is it a power play? I mean, he's the new king. You've got to be able to establish that you are, you're at least trying to establish that you are. Very good. Yes. Now, he's like, it's, it's absolutely a flex for sure. And then there's another layer to it. Gina? It's the only thing David left behind. Oh, good. Remember this? Gina says it's the only thing David left behind. Remember he left the concubines behind? And now he, this guy's going to take possession of these women, for sure. Are you going to add something, Chris? Just that it's going to show the true colors of the other dude, the Hushai. Yes. Hey, you're going to serve me? Well, I'm going to do the most disgraceful, the only, the last disgraceful thing I can do to David. Yes. See if you really still shine like him. Okay, and what is the purpose of doing something that is going to be just, what did you say, disgraceful to David? What, what is the point of alienating David? Yeah, Marty? Burning the bridge. That's it. Burning the bridge, there's no retreat, there's no, there's no other option now because the die has been cast. This is it. Okay, this is, when, when they say, then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench in your father's nostrils, our, our cultural phrase of that is burn the bridge right? There's no going back. You, what I want you to do, I want you to do something that there will be no hope in anybody's mind that there will be a reconciliation between David and Absalom. Burn the bridge. Tear the thing, right? Let's, let's just be done with this. Let's, let's let everybody that's like, is it going to go this way? Is it going to go this way? I'm not sure it's going to go. Open, it's an open declaration of war, right? And so everybody's now going to know that David hates you, which he doesn't, by the way. It's weird, but that's what he's trying to do, to make it a very clean break so everyone come with us. Yeah, Ellen? Is also taking David's authority. He is now declaring himself king. It's like when Reuben slept with um, Jacob's concubine. It's saying, this is my house. This is my kingdom. And it's not yours anymore. Yes, that's right. Very, very good. Okay, a couple of hands up here. Tommy? I wonder also if Absalom, uh, Absalom might have uh, appreciated the symmetry of it. Um, a lot of uh, the division between Absalom and David... Uh, came from uh, with his sister. Yes. So now, and that, no justice was brought by David, and here he perpetrates, in essence, a similar uh, type action against David's house. Yes. So we're absolutely meant to see that there is this human activity of Absalom being being treacherous against David, but the whole time there is this divine line of judgment, right? That even as David, he did something on a roof once, right? Even as I mean, there's all of all is there. There is a parallelism and a, and a poetry to all of this, even though it's sin. And this is where this is where we'll, we'll end on this. These women are being you know turned into commodities. These women are pawns in a game. Okay, and when you see this, when you see like all oh, these women are being abused, what what is your perspective? What do you think the Bible's perspective on that is? There's all these hideous things that happen in the Bible. Is this pleasing to the Lord? Okay. Is the Lord sovereignly behind it? 
That's a weirder thing. That's a harder question to answer, right? Okay. Lily, do you want to speak to that? Be really loud. Yeah. God is always sovereign. So this is not an exception. But I would say that when you see the abuse of the most vulnerable, that just cuts the heart of what makes God angry and what disturbs his heart. You know, not caring for, for those who have no protection. I mean, it's, it just flies in the face of the God who is the only one who is just. You guys, God is, okay, Michael, and then I'll, and then I'll comment, and then we got to get out of here. Michael? So the sovereignty thing, though, God never calls us to sin in that, and so to attribute that would be going against the Levitical law, where he even tells people, you slave to your, dad, your dad's wife, you're supposed to be cut off. And so there's a divine judgment that comes through, but in a fallen world where they had choices, these, again, the Hittites were wise counsel, because he was like an oracle that says uh, earlier in that chapter. So... The sinfulness of the situation is never a way to, to blame it back on God and say, well, God calls this and this. He, you know, he created people with choice in that. And so he is in control of the situation, but the sin did not come from him. That's right. So my, Michael's observation, this is really important. We, we, we have to, we must simultaneously affirm, simultaneously affirm two things that can feel very difficult to hold in tension. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. Number two, God is not the author of sin. But the world over which he is sovereign is just riddled with wickedness. So how does this play out? This is a very, this, we can't do this in 30 seconds, but it's my fault for picking it anyway. So we'll do it very, very briefly, right? So we must, we, sometimes it's been said that God can write straight with a crooked stick, right? God is sovereign over all things and that the world that he reigns is a world filled with badness and brokenness. God is not pleased. He is not the agent behind these women's commodification, but he is using a broken world and all of its wicked players to bring about a good end. And it's basically like all he has to work with because all he has to work with is us, right? In all of our badness and all of our brokenness and all of our treachery and lechery, he uses the, these are the blocks that he uses to build his purposes, right? So he is not behind these women being treated like pawns in a game, but he is behind everything and they are part of the everything that he is behind. And this is, this is one of these theological conundrums that we really wrestle through. I want you to see that what Michael said, he's right. Leviticus 20 explicitly forbids this. It says this, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father, right? He must be put to death. This is not okay. This is sin. This is a wicked thing. And yet God works through wickedness to accomplish his end. All right, Kelly, you get the final word. I just, I, I just want to, I don't think anybody said this, but it, it's the fulfillment of Nathan's prophecy. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh, Nathan's prophecy to David, he says, especially, this is what it says, I'm your own household, I'm going to bring liberty upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. He did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight. That's right. And so this, and that's the sovereignty of God's side, but he is not, he, he, it is nevertheless God was sovereignly working through wicked men to accomplish a good end, right? And that's about as tidy as we can make that in this moment. So next week, chapter 17, we'll do it again. Will I be here? Wait, maybe in two weeks. I'm not here next week. So in a couple of weeks, chapter 17.